0: Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love & Life, Dr. Karen anderson Abrol. Welcome to Love & Life. I'm Dr. Karen anderson Abrol. In today's complex times, it seems more and more people struggle with anxiety. And one of the most debilitating forms of anxiety is social anxiety. And as a professor turned podcaster, I love bringing the psych research and therapeutic techniques to you. So today we're talking about social anxiety and what we can do about it. And I've invited psychologist, Author and social anxiety expert, Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, to the program to share techniques and strategies for reducing social anxiety in your life. Dr. Hendrickson is a clinical psychologist who helps millions calm their anxiety and be their authentic selves through her award winning podcast, Savvy Psychologist, and in the clinic at Boston University's Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. Her debut book is How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. Ellen's scientifically based zero judgment approach has been featured in The Observer, New York Magazine, Scientific American, Vox, Psychology Today, Susan Cain's Quiet Revolution, and many other media outlets. Savvy Psychologist, which has been downloaded over 10 million times, was picked as a best new podcast on iTunes. Ellen earned her PhD at UCLA and completed her training at Harvard Medical School. She lives in the Boston area with her family. Dr. Hendrickson, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be on. I really appreciate your time and I loved your book. I think I'm now a super fan because (laughs) I am also really into CBT and my listeners know of course that the theme of my podcast is take charge of your thoughts take charge of your life and as you pointed out in your book there's so much research that really demonstrates the power of CBT which of course is so just thrilling to be able to share that with everyone whether you're in a therapist's office learning these tools or as you did for your in your book how to be yourself quiet your inner critic and rise above social anxiety. You're sharing some of these techniques that we can all integrate into our lives, whether we're feeling a little nervous before a party or before a presentation in school or at work. There's just so much great stuff that I was really excited to have you on the program to share with my listeners.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. um, My my mission is to make evidence-based psychology accessible because I think way too much either stays in the ivory tower and never really gets disseminated or it's only accessible to people who can afford to either pay for private practice or have really good health insurance. And so I want to make sure that everybody has access to evidence-based psychology. And so, you know, for the price of a book or for a free podcast, you like, know, that's my goal.
0: Yeah. And it's clear. And I, I just have to say for anyone who is interested in this podcast because of the topic, social anxiety, I think is something that many of us struggle with to varying degrees. And we'll, we'll delve into that a little bit more in, in the the rest of the conversation. But I, will, I would encourage you to pick up this book. Uh, I had the the fun uh, opportunity to listen to it in the audio format. And I can tell you that Dr. Hendrickson will become your cheerleader. Mm-hmm. He will convince you that you have skills and abilities that you didn't believe you had. And so it's, it's just a really, it's a very uplifting book grounded in the psych research. And I Highly recommend it. But let's get into, the, into what's going on with social anxiety in general. It seems like a term that a lot of people are believing to be true of themselves. And yet at the same time, you talk a little bit about days gone by, when we think about people who are shy, you, you even mentioned in the book, your grandmother might've called it uh, highly sensitive, or I can't remember the term you used. Painfully but, shy, yes. Yeah, painfully shy, exactly. So now we have terms based on the psych research and clinical psych, but at the same time, what's the distinction really? I mean, should we be concerned that people go, wait, maybe I'm just shy. Do mm. I have to be
1: socially anxious? Sure, that's a great question. And so from, from my point of view, shyness is just the everyday term for social anxiety. And so I, when I say social anxiety there, I say it was kind of a a lowercase s, lowercase a, but really the two terms are interchangeable. And if you ask people, if you pull your friends and, you know, co-workers and relatives and ask, are you shy? 40% of people will say yes. 40% of people will identify with that label. However, if you change the question and ask, have you ever been shy? Have you ever been dispositionally shy? Like, were you shy as a child? Were you awkward as a teenager? Then that number jumps to 80%. And so this is something that almost everybody can identify with. Now, there is a difference between shyness and what I call capital S social anxiety, which is social anxiety disorder. There, there are still a lot of us, and 13% of Americans, at least, at some point in life can be diagnosed with social anxiety disorder. This is where it crosses the line into distress or impairment. Mm -hmm. So, some, some distress is, is, is normal. Like you go to a job interview, you're going to be anxious. You go on a first date, of course, you're going to worry that they're, that they're not going to like you or that you're going to get rejected. But that's, that's proportional. What makes it a disorder is when we lose sleep for the night before a new Pilates class or we, pass up a promotion because it would require us to give presentations. So, so anything in that distress or impairment, so again, it gets in the way of living your life. So my favorite example is if a student deliberately decides to forego 20% of their grade because that's the class participation portion, then that, that is getting in, in the way. So there, when, when it crosses that line, it becomes diagnosable capital S social anxiety, not just shyness or lowercase social anxiety.
0: Yeah. And I think that's such an important distinction to make, whether it's like you're saying, making a profound impact in your life such that it's really detrimental at this point. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, and because I think too many people are labeling themselves and The problem there, a label obviously can be very empowering because Mm -hmm. we go, oh, there's a word for this. There's a term for this. There's treatment plan available. But if we step into a label such that there's no course of action, this is now rigid, this is my life, there's nothing I can do about it, then to me that's the exact opposite. So there's a little tension there between whether a, a label can be an empowering reality for you or whether it can be something that's the exact opposite. And what I love about your book, even when you're talking about capital S, capital A, You are talking about, you put it so beautifully. I wrote it down. You said so much of anxiety is learned, which means it can be unlearned. Mm -hmm. So I love that. Speak to that a little bit if you would.
1: Sure. So I, I think people often ask me like, where does my social anxiety come from? Because they, they do want to know if this is kind of a new part of their identity. This is kind of who they are. It's baked in like the personality trait of introversion or extroversion. Or if this is you know something that that can be treated, that they can move on from. And so they often say, like, where? What? what is this coming from? I think they want to know, is yeah. this genetic, is this sure. medical, you know. And so I, I usually say that there is a genetic load that if you have a first-degree relative with an anxiety disorder, that is, so a parent or a sibling or a child, you have a four- to six-fold increased chance of also having an anxiety disorder. However, we're, even if we're born with that, I'll call it like the the Play-Doh of of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Your your experiences and kind of and, and epigenetics are both going to play into shaping that Play-Doh into a particular thing. And so that Play-Doh might get shaped into something subclinical, or it might get shaped into OCD or GAD or social anxiety. Um, many many people say that they. Can link their social anxiety to being bullied. Mm. There is a—I a, a, haven't found any studies, but there is definitely a nonprofit poll out there that says 37% of people can link their social anxiety to to being bullied in in school. So it's formed definitely with some genetics, um, some experience, and just it all gets mixed up. In this coffee and cream, impossible to separate swirl, (laughs) um, that 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 contributes to to social anxiety.
0: You have a quote from Jerome Kagan. You say genes, culture, time, and luck make us who we
1: are. Mm -hmm. So Jerome Kagan is an eminent uh, psychologist at at Harvard, uh, very important in determining kind of the 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 balance of nature and nurture, and now in these times, epigenetics in determining how we become who we are, uh, both in terms of personality and in terms of, you know, subclinical or even clinical disorders. So giant in, in the field.
0: Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I remember reading some of his work in grad school because my PhD is in developmental psych. So of course, (laughs) of course we were reading some Kagan articles and looking at, the the common term that maybe the layperson or someone who took psych 101 might be familiar with nature versus nurture which is what we're getting at here mm, genes mm-hmm. versus environment and of course Kagan and many many others have said that's just a false <laughs> dichotomy and as mm-hmm. you're pointing out it's the interaction that's at work throughout our lives throughout every experience is then informing our genes and then our genes are informing the, or how we respond to experiences and you really talk about that in chapter three, when you talk about your brain on social anxiety, and I love how you look at this because it's really important. I think it's something that people. I think sometimes people think, and I'd be curious what you. I'm just thinking about this. I'm riffing here for a moment, but all these 23 uh, me and some of these other genetic tests, my concern as a developmental psychologist is that some people might get some feedback on their genes and then think, okay, this is fixed now. This is how I will be for forever. Mm, And mm -hmm, you talk mm -hmm. about that extensively about your brain on social anxiety, that genetics aren't destiny and that yes, our brain affects behavior, but that our behavior affects our
1: brain. Right. Yeah. That, that behavior does change the brain and anything you do frequently can change your brain. The brain is very plastic. And so there are some wonderful studies on cab drivers navigating, you know, a a city grid and how that changes the spatial perceptions in their brain of violinists and how that changes. I'm assuming the, you know, the, whatever part of your brain is musical, Um, even, uh, folks who are heavy users of pornography that can change one's brain. And so the, something that I think can I don't know the research on this, but I imagine that the avoidance that goes into social anxiety can probably change the brains of those of us who are familiar with social anxiety. And by avoidance, what I mean is pretty much exactly what it sounds like, avoiding social situations that make us anxious. And that can happen in one of two ways. That can be overt, meaning that someone just doesn't show up to the party Or may walk the long way around so they don't run into anybody, or may you know put their ear against their apartment door before they leave and make sure that the hallway is clear so they don't have to talk to anyone. There, there, there can be that overt avoidance to make sure that uh, they don't have to interact or be judged. But then there's also covert avoidance, which is when we show up, but we're at the party and we spend most of our time you know staring at our phones, scrolling through Twitter, or we. Uh, go out you know, with sunglasses and earbuds in to guarantee that nobody talks to us. So there's there's definitely that covert avoidance where you're there, but you're trying to blend in or disappear as much as possible so you don't have to interact. So those those two things I'm imagining can can like over years and decades can change one's brain. But the important part is that you can also unwind that, you can unravel that tapestry and by trying, and growing and stretching and doing things that make you at first a little bit anxious you know you can you dip your toe into the pool you don't have to do a cannonball into the deep end to by by you know slowly doing the things that you are scared of you can unwind that and there are studies on this change your brain to be more resilient and less socially anxious yeah and I love
0: that and it I think it's powerful and it just bears underscoring because I think again if we don't realize and that's why I love your mission of bringing the empirical studies, bringing the the legit psych research to the masses, it's, it's such important mm-hmm. because otherwise, what do we know? We don't know, and we just assume. Okay, okay the way we think, my eyes are green, and they're always going to be green. We don't realize that there's much more malleability at work with our personality traits and and these and the psychological and emotional conditions. And another point about avoidance that I think you really highlight in the book, which I think is really important, is that when we avoid an uncomfortable situation, a socially, a a situation that's going to make us feel socially awkward, perhaps. When we avoid that, we essentially reinforce. (laughs) We basically confirm to our our worst fear. We say, yes, that's right. You couldn't have handled that. So it's a good thing you avoided it.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So avoidance feeds the two lies of social anxiety. The first one of which is the worst case scenario is bound to happen. That you know, our our brain. You know, it, it, when, you, when you think about it, like evolutionarily, it makes sense. Like our brain is going to jump to the worst case scenario. It's going to scan the horizon and think of what's the most horrible thing that can happen. Because if we're prepared for that, or we can avoid that, then that that keeps us safe. Our brain is is trying to keep us safe. Right. It's trying. It's 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 essentially on our side. <laughs> but the you know that that smoke detector is turned up a little too high. Like it can be a little too sensitive, so it goes off not just for the equivalent of smoke but it goes off for squirrels and shadows and you know leaves blowing by and so again fundamentally your brain is trying to keep you safe but the worst case scenario doesn't usually happen but if we avoid the scenario then we never get a chance to learn that and we end up with this dearth of experience where we don't have enough on the other side of the scale to balance out. Oh, the thought of oh my god, this you know the worst case. Like, some if I say hello to somebody I don't know very well, they're either going to laugh at me or give me a look like why are you talking to me? Whereas if we go ahead and say hello, likely we'll probably get a friendly hello back. It's you know it's not not guaranteed, but you know chances chances are that's we'll we'll get something that is not. The worst case scenario. We'll probably get something that shows that somebody is kind or generous or, you know, at least neutral. (laughs) So that's that's the first lie of social anxiety. And the second you alluded to, which is that we can't handle it. Again, if we avoid and give up all this experience and evidence that we would have otherwise gotten, we don't know what to do and we don't think that we're capable of handling a given situation. So if we never raise our hand in class and you know give the wrong answer, or if we never give a presentation and either have it go well or even have it go not so well, we never learn that we can survive that and that we are stronger and more resilient than we think. It keeps us in a mindset of, of believing that we have a fatal flaw that unless we work very hard to conceal that, that perceived fatal flaw... It will be revealed and then everyone will judge and reject us because that's, that's the heart of social anxiety.
0: And and when you present it in the book, it just, it's so digestible. It's so clear then. And I think just that in and of itself is normalizing and Mm -hmm. manageable. Mm -hmm. I think people could read this and go, oh, that's what I'm doing? <laughs> and wait. And, and what I love about it is you you—you keep emphasizing, you don't need a new personality. You just need to let your true self out because this fear of this reveal, the, the reveal isn't true anyway. It's not. You, whatever this perceived, the, the, this tragic element of your personality that you think is going to expose you to everyone that's probably not true either. And so it's just such a nice tool. I just mm-hmm, have to say mm-hmm. as a developmental psychologist, when I was reading your book, I kept thinking of one of my best friends who I think is a great parent. She she was dealing with her daughter, I think around middle school, her daughter started doing this whole what if kind of thing. Well, what if I go to Susie's party oh, uh-huh. and, to me? and what if I go to school and everyone is wearing jeans that day and I was stupid and wore a dress and all these what ifs. And, and it was driving my friend crazy because it was bothering her. And then she thought, okay, well, how do I deal with this? And I thought it was very similar to the, the philosophy that you're describing in the book. So she started saying, okay, so what if, all right, let's go there. Right. (laughs) Let's answer
1: that question. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Let's go. What would you do? And so by asking her daughter, what what she would do? She was basically taking the sting and the power out of this worst case scenario and then demonstrating to her daughter, well, I think you can come up with a coping strategy. What would you do if that happened? And then her daughter Mm -hmm. says, well, I guess I'd do this and this and this. And all of a sudden she realizes that she is in fact equipped to handle handle any scenario she's gonna be just fine because she does
1: in fact have coping skills absolutely so if yes you know, so if she goes to the party and no one talks to her what am I gonna do I'll initiate a conversation. Or I, you know, and then and then if no one talks to me, maybe I'll try again. And if still, no one talks to me. Then I'll decide that this party's lame and call my mom and come home. Right. So yeah, so there's absolutely, you know, a plan. Or you know, if I I show up and I'm wearing a dress and everybody's wearing jeans, you know, I can make a joke out of it. I can say, oh, I didn't get the memo, so I'll wear jeans tomorrow. You know, like there we can. There are so many things we can we can do. Yeah, to 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 cope, and I think just remembering that and making a plan for it can be so helpful in managing our anxieties. So I want to, I want to be clear that I want to give credit where credit is due. So the idea that social anxiety is a reveal that we will be, um, revealed as being so say like boring or incompetent, or we'll be revealed as like that our hands are shaking and that you know, everyone, everyone will think we're that I'm an anxious freak or we'll be revealed as being, um, as like stammering or going blank during a conversation or revealed as having no personality. So, so all those things. So D- Dr. David Moscovich of the university of Waterloo has a really nice paper on, on this that has the kind of the basics of that, um, that concept in it. And he talks about how there are fundamentally four different reveals. And the first is it's, it's, a a little bit of an overlap with body dysmorphic disorder. It's Mm -hmm. about there's a reveal about our appearance so that maybe we're, we are afraid that if we we don't work hard to conceal uh, this perceived flaw of being fat or ugly, or that our skin is blemished, that we'll be revealed and rejected. So that's one. The second is uh, the signs of anxiety themselves so that we will be revealed as uh, you know, blushing too much, or sweating through our shirt, or our voice is trembling, and 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 will be revealed as an anxious freak, and people will you know will reject us for that. The third, third, and fourth are the are the biggest ones, and the first, the third one there is that there is some aspect of our social skills that uh, is lacking. So perhaps we uh, like go blank or are boring or are not funny or are not cool and we have to work really hard and overcompensate in order to keep that under wraps and the last one is that there's just something about our whole personality looks like characterologically we are off we need a personality transplant so either like we're incompetent or we're stupid or we're boring or something along those lines and anyone and are these these perceived reveals are just that perceptions that they are either not true at all, or there may be a grain of truth. Like maybe somebody does blush or, you know, maybe somebody does go blank under pressure that, you know, that absolutely happens. But the, the consequences of people noticing that are not as dire as we imagine. And personally, I think that that, that idea of a reveal links nicely to why so many people develop social anxiety from bullying because The bullies have essentially said that this is your fatal flaw, like you're a loser or, you know, you're stupid and and have created that that reveal. And so I think that the 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 trauma of bullying can make people internalize those labels and and that experience. And 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 if our brains buy into that, then, of course, you know, it will uh, it will carry, will carry that with us, um, for, you know, years and decades to come. So it's, that's a, that's a, that's a really tough thing to, uh, to experience. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. In, in the book, you share a lot of strategies to basically coax your clients into seeing themselves the way you see them. That Mm -hmm. If if there's a reveal there that it's, like you said, it's not as catastrophic. Maybe there's a little truth to it, but really it's not that big a deal. And even if there's an element of truth there, they can cope with it. They can find workarounds and, and so forth. And so you do a lot of active participating with your clients where if they're scared to, that they're going to ask a question to a stranger and feel stupid, then you go, okay, let's do it. And you go out into the real world and, and test those, those fears to see if they're just all that bad. If they actually do ask a question and appear stupid to a stranger, that
1: sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So, for example, um, I was working with this. I, so, first of all, just, I, I love working with people with social anxiety because they are inevitably just so nice and so kind yeah. and such wonderful people. And it's, it's my privilege to help them see that and to learn that. Um, and so, for instance, I was working with a man who had to give presentations at work and was, re- he was he was reading his presentations like scripted, you know, line for line because he worried that if he messed up at any point, Like it would be catastrophic. You know, he'd be revealed as incompetent. And so we deliberately had him do a practice speech in front of some of the research assistants um, at the center where I work and had him deliberately like lose his place and just pause for five seconds. And five seconds is a long time when, when you're standing in front of people with all the eyes on you. And and so, and then after the speech was done, we asked for feedback and people said, yeah, I noticed that you paused, but I thought you were just collecting your thoughts. Like I didn't, I didn't realize like this, I didn't see like this is this huge screw up or something like that. I just, I thought it was, I, I was like, oh, he's pausing. Okay. It was, it was like, a, it was neutral. It didn't, it didn't then ping pong over to, to some horrible judgment. So that, that's one example. In another example, I I love. I was I was supervising a case where uh, there was uh, another man who just was was always very kind of formal and stiff in his behavior. He and he was afraid that he would be revealed as a fool if he did anything kind of out of line of like what is you know, appropriate. And so the therapist I was supervising had him dance through the waiting room. So he, uh, he, he put in some earbuds and like just kind of jammed and like twirled and danced like through the waiting room. Like, you know, and, and he ended up (laughs) saying it with, it was really fun. (laughs) Like he was, he was really nervous beforehand and did not want to do it, but you know, he, he did it and he's like, Oh, nothing happened like people didn't even look up from their phones you know? and, and then he did it again. And, you know, I think, I think he got, he got a smile from, from one woman who was sitting there. Uh, but nobody stood up and said, you are a fool. Like you get out of here. Like, no wonder you're in treatment. You're crazy. You know, not, nothing like that. <laughs> even remotely, you know, people thought it was endearing and cute. And that was a huge moment for him. So, yeah. 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 So powerful. And, As a cognitive behavioral therapist,
0: you probably do a lot of those more action-oriented interventions. I mean, we could spend a lot of time digging to figure out where that that fear or that shame-based belief came from. And maybe you do some unpacking of that as well. But I love that you also, to say it just in in a pithy way, just you fake it till you make it. Absolutely. So sometimes we got to let our actions lead, and then let that, as you put it in the book, the confidence follow.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's there's a myth about confidence that somehow we can you know retreat from the world and like work on ourselves and read some self help books and you know kind of marinate and then reemerge right. you know into the world like ready to take it on. And I wish it could be like that. That would be amazing. So the relationship between. Action and confidence is is a lot like the um, the relationship between action motivation. Like oftentimes, we think we have to feel like doing something before we do it. We think we have to feel like working out before we go to the gym. We think we have to feel like inspired, you know, before we sit down to work on our great American novel. (laughs) But really, it's the opposite. That we can just get going. We can lace up our shoes whether we feel like it or not and head to the gym, whether we feel like it or not. And probably once we get there and start going through the motions, we'll get inspired. Like our, our motivation will catch up or we can sit down at the keyboard and just start pounding out sentences, even if we're grumpy and not feeling it today. And then hopefully, you know, inspiration will strike and then we can get into flow and, you know, and, and get all our words out there. Um, and so the same thing happens with confidence is that, you know, we think we have to go like work on ourselves and then emerge confident. But really what happens is that we gain confidence by living our life. We don't gain confidence and then live our life. So what I ask people to do is to think of what would you be doing if you were comfortable, if you were living the life you wanted, you know, what would you be doing? And so to make it very behavioral mm-hmm. like that, and it doesn't have to be these huge things. Like if I was living the life I wanted, I'd have a Lamborghini, you know, like we thought not that, but more like if I were living the life I wanted, I would say yes to party invitations. Or if I were living the life I wanted, I would get back into online dating. Or if I were living the life I wanted, I could send back uh, the wrong you know, dinner that gets brought out to me by the waiter, you know, and I could say like, Oh, sorry, you know, sorry, excuse me. I, I didn't order this. Um, I think there's been a mistake as opposed to eating meatloaf that you don't like. You know, So, uh, so we, so we choose some little things and some medium things and some bigger things that they would like to try. And then we work our way through, through the list. And, and I personally, like I, it's not that I don't care about where this comes from. I I certainly like that, that aha moment can be very effective, mm-hmm. but what I really care about is how, whatever it was is affecting them now. Right. And that's where we work.
0: Yeah. And, and yeah. And of course in, in psychotherapy, there can be the criticism that cognitive behavioral therapists are just too here and now, and they never delve back to kind of get at the root issue, which I don't think is, I don't think it has to be in either. I, or. Yeah, I, don't, I agree. I yeah. agree. I think both can be useful, like you said, but at the same time, it's really and really this is grounded in mindfulness, which you also bring up. Really, what we have is this present moment, and so oftentimes, if we are stuck, a lot of of, of some of our pathology is because we are either ruminating too much about the past or anticipating all this dread and horror in the future, <laughs> and so that bringing concretizing our experiences and, and bringing them to the here and now, I think is really powerful. And of course, all the research on mindfulness speaks to that, which you also speak to as well. Everyone knows I love nothing more than a party, which is why I'm so excited to welcome our newest sponsor, Chaotic and Collected Garlands and Party Decor by Jess Downey. Jess creates hip and handmade party supplies. Check them out at chaoticcollectedinc.com. And if your party has a theme that is a little unconventional, Jess is your girl because she loves creating custom designs for your party. Say a hipster baby shower or a craft beer party or my annual wine and cheese soiree chaotic collected let's talk a little bit if you're if you're okay with it yeah uh, let's talk a little bit about uh the two you talk about the two main techniques are replace and embrace Mm-hmm. And, and as uh, and my listeners know, I'm a big Albert Ellis fan, which I saw uh, through the book that you are as well. He is hilarious. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. What a what a character. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, yeah. and, but literally, I remember learning his stuff in grad school and going, would that really work? And then... Mm-hmm really started using it on my own life before I ever used it with clients. It was more that I started seeing the power of me dismantling and unpacking these irrational thought streams that were getting me Mm -hmm. nowhere and were absolutely silly. And so I love that you bring that to in this replace notion and then the embrace notion, which almost sound like polar opposites, but really you're, you're presenting them as being able to work hand in hand.
1: Right. Right. So the, yeah, I think of it as two buckets worth of tools. So the, the replace is your, you know, your, your kind of bread and butter cognitive behavioral therapy, like cognitive restructuring. So like, let's get in the ring with our thoughts and go a few rounds. And so (laughs) let's ask, you know, so like with the, um, so let's specify what we're worried about because like, so often, you know, just like your story with uh, your friend's daughter with the what ifs, that it's, it's really hard to argue with a question. And so if, if the thought that's going through our head is, is a what if or is some other kind of question, it, it behooves us to restructure that as a sentence. So like, what if they all laugh at me gets changed to, they're all going to laugh at me. And that you can argue with. You can argue like that you can put on trial. And so there, once you've kind of caught the, whatever you're worried about, this, you know, the feared reveal of you know they're going to laugh at me or she's going to think I'm boring or he's going to hate me then you can you can ask yourself some questions like you know well what's you know what's the worst case scenario and and to to play out like okay what am i really afraid is, is going to happen and then what's the most likely scenario cuz you know the worst case scenario is is you know by you know almost by um, definition rare and so what's more likely or like what are the odds that that will actually happen Um, How can I cope? What will I do if that worst case scenario occurs? Or, you know, just like, how do I picture myself coping in this situation? You can really give yourself a plan and try to refute those two lies that I talked about the, you know, the worst case scenario is bound to happen and I can't handle this. So to really, you know, kind of talk yourself out, like logic yourself out of, of this fear. Now, ultimately I, I think of the, this as kind of the runway to, that you go down to psych yourself up to go into the situation like it's not it's not sufficient on its own you can't kind of decide that you're not socially anxious anymore you have to you have, you have to go go do it and you know fake it till you make it but it, it's a wonderful running start and so I appreciate uh, the the replace technique very much. then embrace if we're going to continue with this uh, you know boxing metaphor instead of getting in the ring with your thoughts and going a few rounds this is where you sit you stand outside the ring and you watch your thoughts throw haymakers at you (laughs) and you calmly observe this is mindfulness, Mm -hmm. right? So you notice there's that, there's that, there's a big gap between everyone's going to hate me. And I'm having the thought that everyone's going to hate me. There is like, that's very, it's, it's equally subtle and profound. And so using mindfulness, we can take that step back and you know, to use a John Kabat-Zinn analogy, we can, rather than being under the waterfall where the thoughts are like pounding on our head and like we're getting caught in the current and swirling all around like with our thoughts, we can stand behind the waterfall and still see the thoughts. You know, we, we can't control what we think. We can't control what our brain comes up with any more than we can control our heart beating. But what we can do is choose how we respond to those thoughts. And so if we can take a step back and stand behind the waterfall of thoughts and say, Oh, there's that thought again. This always comes up before I go to a party or this always happens. You know, like I, I, I always feel this resistance in my body before I have to go out with friends. We can just say, Oh, hello, social anxiety. (laughs) I, I recognize you. And, and then, you know, depending on where, where we are in our practice, like maybe we're ready to to go, you know, prove that wrong or you know, maybe we're not quite ready and that's fine too, but to, to keep on challenging ourselves and pushing ourselves and gathering that evidence, getting, getting that, uh, that evidence under our belt that, that we're, we can handle this and, and things are okay. It might not be amazing. We might not have the time of our life, but, uh, but the worst case scenario, you know, didn't, didn't come and, and beat us up. Yeah. And I love that. And like I said
0: earlier, I, I'm really more from the old, like, get into that boxing ring. Let's duke it out. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. oh, yeah. I am too. not going to be irrational. <laughs> that is not me. I do not own that. Right. So I'm going to prove to myself how rational I am. And I'm going to beat down those stupid thoughts. But I went to an ACT uh, intensive training. Mm. So so mm-hmm. your embrace component really reminded me of the ACT, which is acceptance commitment therapy. And there, there's this a bit of a detachment Where, Uh as you're expressing, uh, instead of, I'm feeling nervous to go to the party, I'm having the thought that I'm feeling nervous about going to the party. And how that, when you have just a little bit of distance between the thought and the feeling and you, it becomes then the space between, I think, allows us to go, well, if I'm having that thought, I could also have this thought, which is. Sure. I'm nervous Uh because everyone's nervous when they go to a party where they don't know many people. Sure. I'm nervous because that's just how life is. There's new experiences and they're anxiety provoking, but also in conjunction with all that, I can also go. I'm also thinking that I'm nervous yet still capable of going and having a pleasant time.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's really important that in those examples that you just gave, like, you know, it makes sense that I'm nervous. Like, this is what it means to, to, you know, to go to a party that where I know a few people, like, of course, like that, that the, all those statements are very like neutral to kind and they're very supportive. And I think we don't often talk to right. ourselves like that. We, we often will say like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? This is right. stupid. You know, and or just like other things we would never say, like what's wrong with you? Like you can't like this, you're stupid to anybody else. Right. And so I think that the, the, the way we talk to ourselves, you know, so bringing in self-compassion here is, 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 is a really important part of, of embrace as, as well, because we can't heal in a punitive environment. Like nobody ever Mm got yelled at by a parent or a coach and then said, Oh, well, you know, they have a point there. <laughs> you know, Like, uh, like that we like, it just, it just, we can't move forward under harsh criticism. And so I think that's something that is really hard for folks with social anxiety to let go of because, uh, I mean, and we can segue into this if you'd like is because social anxiety is driven by perfectionism. Mm. And so there is this idea that, you know, it's all or nothing. And like, we have to, be cool as a cucumber and be witty at all times and carry the entire conversation and make everybody instantly dazzled by us or we're a complete failure. And so I think it, it makes sense that a lot of folks with social anxiety will, will talk harshly to themselves uh, because they're fundamentally trying to not fail. Perfectionism is a bit of a misnomer. It's not about being perfect. It's about never being good enough. Um, but like I think letting go of that and really consciously trying to uh, go easier on yourself and speak to yourself in a kind, supportive way can really work wonders.
0: Yeah, it's that, that cheesy, be your own best friend, which is so true. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm, we, mm-hmm, we're yeah. so mean to ourselves. It's just, it's ridiculous. And, and, and the things that we would never say to our worst enemy. <laughs> We will have a running mm-hmm. commentary in our minds about ourselves. And it's yeah, I think that was a, a really a, a really empowering component of your book as well. And also that you highlight that people who are socially anxious, and you you kind of mentioned it a, a little bit earlier, are typically very kind and sensitive people. We need them. We just don't need them to be on such high alert and high anxiety that their their lives are are being compromised. But we do love that they're very pro-social in general.
1: Absolutely. No, I, I, I say in the book, and I, I always try to, um, uh, express to my clients that social anxiety is a package deal that, you know, it comes bundled with some really valuable traits and skills. So, you know, folks with social anxiety, um, are generally pro-social, which, you know, means helpful and altruistic. Um, that oddly they're good at remembering faces. I thought that was an interesting little paper yeah. that I found um they're highly conscientious which is the number one trait for being both objectively and subjectively yeah. successful in this world meaning so we're like dutiful and um responsible mm-hmm. we're not flaky we're the kind of person that people want as a friend um yeah and we're good listeners like there's so many like really nice traits that come bundled with social anxiety and the thing that i really love is that those things don't go away even as you work on your social anxiety, so even as as the anxiety lessens, those other lovely traits don't. Those hang hang firm, which is great.
0: Yeah, and and I think when I when I think going back to kind of this normalizing, which I remember in grad school learning this technique this therapeutic technique of normalizing I was like that's a technique i mean how can how can that be powerful but it is so powerful just basically telling ourselves well of course it's it's normal to feel this way i think and and from your experience with your clients do you see that socially anxious people sometimes assume everyone
1: else is super comfortable at this party when in reality everyone's probably keyed oh, up a little bit absolutely yeah no, and that i think that's the thing that i've especially gotten out of writing this book <laughs> is is knowing that you know everybody has their insecurities and that insecurity is evolutionarily baked into us because it makes us check ourselves. It makes us doubt ourselves so that we stay in line, you know, not, not like in a conformist way, but just like in a way that helps us get along as a society And so a little bit of insecurity, a little, little bit of social anxiety actually helps grease the wheels of our civilization. And so the, you know, the exceptions are the 1% that are the narcissists and psychopaths, you know, of the world. Um, But you don't want to be them either. So, so it's, 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 you know, it's way better to, to be in that 99% of having, having some insecurities about, um, you know, the, your self or the, or appearance or, um like i said the symptoms of anxiety and and it's i absolutely it can be i'm not saying that social anxiety like capital s is good that absolutely gets in people's way but it's you know it, it, if if you turn down the volume it it doesn't do any good to turn it right. off yeah
0: and you have i think you compiled maybe a couple self report measures in the beginning of the book kind of a questionnaire to see how socially mm-hmm. anxious you might be. And I don't consider myself socially anxious, but like anyone, if I'm thrown into a new environment, I'm, my heart will be racing. My palms will be sweating. <laughs> so as I was looking through the items in in the survey, I thought, hmm, yeah, I, I feel a lot of those too. So it's good, I think, to really have a, a, a resource like what you've presented with your book to kind of really look into just the layers of it. And, and again, normalizing is powerful and and then getting some real, just real tangible tools, which I love too, because I know a lot of people in, in uh, the lay people, for example, might think that psychologists are all in our heads and we're theorizing this and theorizing that, but you're bringing so many brass tacks to the, to the conversation. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram at Dr. Karen, that's D-R-K-A-R-I-N. On Twitter, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson. Live tweet with me when I watch my favorite shows Will and Grace, My Brand New fave, God Friended Me, and of course, all shows Bachelor Nation. Join me on Facebook where I'm stepping up my Facebook Live game. I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson so another element you discussed in the book I thought was fascinating, and it's the idea that we can sometimes feel less socially anxious if we, quote unquote, take on a role. And what made me think of it, so my stepdaughter works in fundraising in D.C., so she's very often attending some big fundraiser with all these important big wigs and that sort of thing, and she considers herself an introvert. Mm. But what she does is she kind of, as you were talking about a little bit of the acting as if she, she says to herself, well, I'm just playing the role of staffing this event for the Congress person that I'm representing. Mm-hmm. And that's in fact what she's actually doing, but when, by calling it, it's kind of like we talked about earlier, creating just a bit of distance by calling it, playing the role, it helps her just calm down because she goes, well, what would I do if I were comfortable interacting with all these high powered politicians? Well, I would do this and this and this and she does this and this and this and everything's fine. <laughs>
1: right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think, so I, I, one of my favorite studies, so I'm a big nerd, so I have favorite studies but <laughs> is, um, there, there's this lovely study by, uh, doctors, uh, Simon Thompson and Ron Rapay and they're Australian researchers. And so they did this, this really interesting study where they, Took women from kind of opposite ends of the social anxiety continuum. So uh, some women with diagnosed, you know, capital S social anxiety, and then um, another group of women who were kind of naturally gregarious and outgoing and extroverted. And so one at a time, they had each woman go into uh, a, a, what was purportedly the waiting room for this experiment, and they sat down, and a, a male research assistant who was pretending to be another, um, participant would come in, sit down in the room and just make a little small talk comment. So the first one was, I hope we don't have to wait too long. And then he would just wait and see, you know, how she responded. And then every 30 seconds, if the conversation had died, he would give another little, you know, prompt like that. And so this went on for five minutes and this was the unstructured portion of the experiment. Okay. So after that five minutes, the researcher would come in and say, Oh, thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate your, your, you know, that you're here. Okay. Here's, here's what we're going to do for the next five minutes. I would like the two of you to pretend that you're at a party and get to know each other as well as possible. Go. And so then conversation would ensue for another five minutes. And afterwards the, 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 these, these were all videotaped, you know, unbeknownst to the participant, they were debriefed afterwards, but um, but unbeknownst to them, they had been videotaped for both of these five-minute segments. And the reviewers then rated kind of the, the social competence thereof. And the women with social anxiety lagged really far behind the you know more gregarious women in the first five minutes, which makes sense. But what I love is that in the second five minutes where they're given a role, they're given like a mission, that the two groups are almost neck and neck. And so keep in mind that these are you know women with diagnosed social anxiety, and they're being compared to people who just you know have never met a stranger. They they you know do this every day, you know, no problem, and they can rise to almost that level, like way beyond average, which I found fascinating. And so just giving yourself either like uh, a role, like you talked about in your example of like, okay, well, you know, if I were fundraising and, you know, had to get this done and, you know, we're an extrovert at this event, like what would I do? Okay, I'm going to do that. You can either, you can either kind of put on a role like that or you can give yourself a mission in your head. You can say, okay, at this party, I'm going to talk to three new people and then, then I'll evaluate whether or not I'm having a good time. And if I'm not, I can go, but if I am, then I'll hang out. or, you know, or you could, or you could do specific people. So like you could go to your, I don't know, office holiday party and say, all right, I'm going to talk to my boss, each of my direct reports and the office manager. And then we'll see, see how, how things are going. And usually, you know, we end up kind of getting into the rhythm and, and enjoy ourselves way more than we thought we actually would. And so just that little bit of structure can be super valuable. And the only the only word of caution I would give is to make sure that whatever that structure is isn't something that allows you to avoid. So like I think a lot of people will go to a I don't know, like a party and decide that they're going to be the one to take pictures or they're going to be the one who helps clean up. And that's fine as long as it allows you to talk to everybody, you know, and kind of be in the mix. If that's a way that that gets you in then absolutely do that. But if it's a way to keep yourself out, then it's becoming avoidance. So just to be really honest with yourself and to, 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 make sure it's, it's, you're playing that role in order to practice that if it's that scaffolding that eventually, as you gain more experience, you can take down.
0: Well, and what I love about that is that if you told a client, like, let's try this it almost seems too simplistic. Mm -hmm. It almost seems like that's not going to work. I mean, come on, it's, I can't play pretend and it's going to really help me feel more comfortable. Or I can't set up this little game where I have to talk to three people and then I can evaluate whether or not I want to leave. But then you go, oh, but we have some research. (laughs) Right, right, right. Because I think sometimes the techniques do seem just, wait, is that really going to work? And yet we do, we have the research to substantiate that. Yeah. They do. They yeah,
1: have, yeah. I, I think what, that's something that it, it does that, that I find interesting is that like faking it till you make it or you know, acting as if sets up a feedback loop not only to the people you're with, like if you go in there, you know, like the fundraising example and you know, are are on and are you know, are are talking and are, you know, doing your thing, then that sets up a feedback loop with them to that that cues them like in terms of how to treat you and like so they'll they'll interact and probably respond in kind but it also sets up a feedback loop to yourself right and and so by acting as if it's not as if we are putting on some kind of persona of somebody who is confident or warm or whatever, we are being confident and and warm, even if we, even if that hasn't caught up quite yet. So I feel like fake it till you make it is a little bit of a, of a misnomer, but it's, it's, it's that feedback loop that allows you to kind of progress that at first, yeah, you probably are faking it. And I know I, you know, I've faked it certainly, you know, in interviews or, you know, conversations or whatever, but then, then as as you repeat that experience over and over again, it becomes, you internalize it and it becomes you. It's not fake anymore.
0: Yeah. And I talk about this a lot too. And you, you referenced it in your book. We kind of, again, we, we, we look at everyone else and if they seem so socially polished, we just think that they were born that way or that they just have this ability and yet they've probably just practiced it the way that you're encouraging your clients to practice. And like anything, if I tried to do a push-up right now, it'd be impossible. (laughs) But if I did a bunch (laughs) for a long time, pretty soon I could do 10 push-ups and it'd be no problem. So it's really not so different. It really has to do with just that repetition. And then what used to be so foreign and felt so forced and fake then actually becomes, wow, no, that is a facet of me. It's just a facet that had been underdeveloped before, but it really is me. And then it it can even become your default mode. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty of all the work you're doing. And I just want to thank you again for the book. I'm really thrilled to have that resource. So when folks reach out to me with questions, I can refer the book to them and refer this podcast to them and then um, tell the listeners about your podcast as well, and then let them know anything else and where to find you. And thank you so much, Dr. Hendrickson, for coming on the program. Really. Oh,
1: of course. It. Absolutely. No, I was delighted to talk to you. You're very easy to talk to good, good interviewer. Oh, um, yeah, of course. And so, um, yeah, so the book is called how to be yourself, uh, quiet, your inner critic and rise above social anxiety. And you can, you know, find it any, where you like to get your books Uh, my podcast is called savvy psychologist and it is a very short actionable podcast it's only about you know 12 or 13 minutes and it comes out every friday and uh we i i base it off requests from from listeners so um so we tackle a different topic every week and you can find me on twitter at ellen hendrickson um yeah and so so thank you again for for having me it was really a delight to talk to you and it's always nice to, to nerd out with a fellow psychologist.
0: <laughs> well, my listeners know I consider myself a psych nerd, and so many of them are as well. So they're going to really dig this. So thanks again. Thank you. The love and life hack for this week is take charge of social anxiety with CBT. Through cognitive behavioral therapeutic techniques, we can quiet our inner critic and rise above social anxiety thanks for joining us this week. And an extra special thank you for those of you who subscribe to the podcast and have rated and reviewed episodes. It makes such a difference. And I'm so appreciative. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Averill. And until next time, make it a great week.